0: Welcome back Storytellers, this is your host, Yin Cheng. If you've been enjoying our podcast, you'll also enjoy our essays and articles over on our website at 88cupsoftea.com. Our published pieces are written by some of your favorite authors and powerful emerging voices. Our recently published piece is written by Shamile Sayed Mendez, where she writes candidly about life's hurdles and finding magic in the day to day. Shamile is the author of Furia, which recently released on September 15th about a powerful own voices contemporary young adult for fans of The Poet X and I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter set in Argentina about a rising soccer star who must put everything on the line, even her blooming love story to follow her dreams. Shamile's 88 Cups of Tea article is the newest installment in our essay and podcast series of intimate stories in the partnership with our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts. We teamed up with VCFA's MFA in writing for children and young adults to create this thoughtfully curated series to provide you with as much inspiration as possible along your writing journey. If you haven't had the chance to check out this series yet, Trust me, you'll want to check it out. So be sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA. We have podcast episodes that feature guests like Shamile's literary agent, Linda Camacho, and authors like Kekla Magoon and Anne Nah, along with articles and essays by Anne Davila Cardinal and many more. To read and listen to all of the podcast episodes and essays in our exclusive series with VCFA, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA. And to learn more about the master's program at Vermont College of Fine Arts, head over to VCFA.edu. Now for those of you who are looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers and experience what it's like to be a part of our community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on a daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress along with swapping recommendations for books and TV shows. And there's a whole lot more that happens in there. So. If you have a smile on your face right now, just from listening to that, you need to come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88cupsoftea. For our show today, we have award-winning author Stacy Lee. Stacy's works include Outrun the Moon, which won the 2017 Penn Center Award for Young Adult Fiction, and her most recent The Downstairs Girl, which Booklist called Spectacular. I first met Stacey Lee a few years ago when she reached out to invite me to moderate a panel that she was facilitating at the Chatham Square Library, a branch of the New York Public Library where she brought seven Asian American authors together, which included Stacey, Rhoda Baeza, Sona Charipatra, Jenny Han, Heidi Heilig, Emily X.R. Pan, and Karuna Riazzi, and we had a beautiful conversation discussing the intersection of culture and fiction. And I'm so thrilled and honored to reconnect with Stacy in this way. In the first part of our conversation, we discussed how Stacy cultivated the confidence she needed as a young storyteller, entering poetry contests at a very young age. And she gives us a peek into her past as a law school student and shares how law school helped her see the importance of every single word you place on the page. We then discuss how she transitioned from being a lawyer to becoming a full-time novelist and how her experiences as a lawyer helped her craft authenticity in her characters. We discuss the inspiration behind her novel Under a Painted Sky and her detailed research process that helped her uncover Asian American stories that have yet to be told. We then discuss her use of metaphors to craft her strong protagonists in her newest novel, The Downstairs Girl and later we chat about finding critique partners when you're new to the writing world and why it's important to have patience when finding time to be productive. Now let's jump right in. I'm so excited, listeners. We have Stacey Lee with us on the podcast. This has been a long time in the making. We've been wanting to have Stacey on. Finally, we have the chance. Perfect timing. Cannot wait to dive into her stories with you. Stacey, how are you? I'm
1: great, and thank you so much for having me in. I am so happy to be here. Oh
0: my gosh, I'm so thrilled. And (laughs) just to fill everyone in a little bit about how we met, you were so kind to invite me to be a moderator on your panel for the Seven Asian American Authors. It was like two years ago, I believe? I think it was two years, and it was such an amazing special
1: time because it was really the first time a bunch of, you know, exclusively Asian American panelists came together in one. IA and it was at the New York library yeah. and there was just so much energy in the room and we had just so many things in common and I just loved it. So you were the perfect moderator for that. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation again. And even thinking about me, I was honored. And also it was just <laughs> very, very moving to hear each of your stories, and it was a very special event that you put together. And kudos to you. I tip my hat to you. You are awesome in leading that. So thank you again. Oh, welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Stacey, I want to get into, this is what we usually do with at the very top of the show is if you can try and share your earliest memory possible of when you first fell in love with storytelling.
1: Oh, Sure. First I remember was in third grade and I had always loved writing and reading, just writing down strange, I don't know, ideas and maybe some terrible pictures to go with it. But then in eighth grade, my teacher had this poetry contest and this was my chance you know, this is my chance to actually do something and turn it in and maybe have it recognized. So I wrote a poem about a Thanksgiving turkey and it won. It won Yen. It won the big prize, (gasps) which was to be put on the board. And it was like, wow, now everybody's reading my work. This was a really special moment for me. So yeah, that was my first experience. And that led to more poetry. And basically I just copied the format of the Thanksgiving turkey poetry and put like different things like Santa Claus in it. And I thought they were really (laughs) special, but Then I realized, okay, no, I have to do a little more than just copy the same thing over (laughs) and over
0: (laughs) again. Oh my God, I love that story so much. Okay, this is amazing that you shared that because I listened to your TED Talks titled Small Voices. And you mentioned that you were so excited to see that there was that poetry contest when you were in eighth grade. And you go into more detail where you were very much more introverted. And, but then for me, I'm like, wow, but, To have that courage and bravery going through what you went through, what you shared in the TED Talks, but still having that curiosity and that courage to then be like, no, I am going to share my voice by applying for this contest. And then there you go, you won. And I I just found that so fascinating because I'm sure that it took even more courage to want to enter the contest. You know what I mean? Just from the context that I got from your small voices talk.
1: Right. I mean, I think even though I was afraid to be looked at or be like have attention put on me, I still wanted the positive affirmation that I could make something worth reading. Yeah, I still wanted that praise. So it was just some that was one way I could get it is to sort of submit something. No one's looking at me. They're just going to judge me by my work. And that's what I, that's all I wanted.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay. That's just incredible. And do you feel like after you won, it gave you almost that internal confidence? Yeah, it was very validating. And as well, I was able to
1: bring that home to my mom. And I think that was what really opened her eyes. And you know, it was like in a nice frame. and yes, <laughs> and my mother was like, "Oh, wow." And I think, I mean, parents weren't very expressive back then. I mean, she they certainly weren't nowadays they are with with our children. yeah, but it was more like, "Oh, good job." But I think it opened her eyes to the fact that, oh, my daughter is interested in this." And so my parents were always of the mind that writing is it's great that she wants to do writing. But we really want her to have something solid, like a solid career, which is very typical, right, mm-hmm. as an Asian American parents. Yes. So, but I think that was the first time it put it in her head that, oh, maybe she does have a different interest and may have, like, a different path.
0: Okay, I cannot help but ask, and only because of my own personal experiences, and I read in your bio that you are fourth-generation Chinese American. Do you ever feel that pressure directly, or was like was it more, like, in your face like my mom's was? <gasps> Well, yes, I definitely was faced with a lot
1: of these more first and second generational like I don't know if it's passed down attitudes. It must be. I mean, when immigrants come here, being a doctor or a lawyer, that's really the, the way to turn around one's fortune immediately. Mm, right. Yes. So I feel like that's why this pressure to go into those professions and then those attitudes can be passed down generationally i think yes you grow up around that you it, it just continues so even myself i have children who are about to go to college or will be going to college soon. And I find myself, my daughter wants to be a writer. I find myself sort of reverting and sort of fighting with that. Are you sure you don't want to go into the sciences? And she kind of rolls her eyes at me. Oh, yeah, mommy, you can say that. (laughs) I mean, I think a lot of it is we just want to protect our kids, right? Right. But for my parents, I actually was a pre-med major. (laughs) And as you know, I went to law school. And I got the degree and I practiced and I tried to do my best to, I mean, a part of it is my personality too. I'm a very good daughter, like mm-hmm. I'm the middle daughter and I always really am careful about making sure my parents are happy and mm-hmm. they you so much for us. But I also, you know, at a certain point after I feel like I put in enough time mm-hmm. <laughs> and invested enough time. I was able to finally pursue what I had always wanted to do. And so, you know, one of your listeners had brought up a question.
0: Are we talking about Benny? Yeah. So Benny Long in our community asked, you studied and practiced law. If you could do it again, would you have skipped law school?
1: Yes. And the answer is, (laughs) for me, no, I would not have skipped law school. But the reason is because, well, a couple of reasons. I met some really good friends that way mm. and, you know, friends are family. And then two, I think everyone should, if they get a chance, I think everyone should go to law school because it's mm. fascinating to learn about the history of our legal rights, how we came to be where we are today in this country as immigrants. I think that is all something that they teach you in law school. And in terms of our whole country and how everything has come to this point, you understand so well in law school, how our rights have shaped who we are. So I feel everyone should go to law school. I know that's saying a lot, but it was just so important for me in terms of my intellectual development, I think. Um, And then I said two reasons, but there are actually three reasons. The third reason is because I think law school really helped me become a better writer. Oh. It teaches you a very strict, lean style of writing. In fact, we were fined for every adjective and every adverb we use. Oh we were God, fined for really? like 25 cents by <gasps> one of my legal writing professors. Yeah. Oh and so it makes you really consider the importance of every single word you use. And then you can... You know, in terms of legal writing, they want a very streamlined style of writing. But my own writing now, every time I want to use an adjective or an adverb, I think about it. And that doesn't mean that I don't. I mean, those are very (laughs) important in writing. I use them. But now everything is like something I think about. And whether I need that word, it comes down to that level. So Mm. I don't know if I would have been so obsessive maybe about that. Had I not gone to law school? But I really do feel like it has
0: made me a better writer. Was it difficult to transition to novel writing, which needs, I would say, more creativity, right, compared to law writing?
1: That is such a great question. Well, in law school, there are a lot of facts and it can be dry. It can be kind of intimidating when they use the method and like drill you about cases you've read. Yes. <laughs> I felt that was kind of a stressful aspect of law school. Yes. But what it makes you do is you read cases and you hear arguments. You hear the plaintiff's arguments, you hear the defense arguments, and you struggle with whether or not you agree with one side or the other, and you are able to form opinions and you are able to empathize with both sides. So I feel like that's another reason why it's helpful to my writing, because I think to be a writer means that you have to understand everyone's struggle, mm-hmm. not just the protagonist but also the antagonists and everyone in between. You have to understand where they're coming from and how that informs where they are in life and how they react and what the relationship dynamics are. mm. So in that way, I do feel the law has been so helpful because I'm able to appreciate where people are coming from. And that is really the heart of any story of the characters. And so it helps me to create authentic characters Mm -hmm. by really delving into their motivations.
0: You've always had this burning desire of wanting to write throughout your pre-med major and then your law degree and practicing law. Where was your, because I know your first published book, Under a Painted Sky, was in 2015. So where was the story idea? Like, where was the seedling? Like, when was that planted for you? Was that during law school like studying straight facts and it giving you inspiration or was it something that you've had even before then that idea and then realize okay you know I'm gonna take this time as I'm studying through school and practicing law to just let it brew on the side until I'm ready to really go full force with it and run with it.
1: Under a Painted Sky that happened after I had retired from the law and I have having kids and I had the chance to, I mean, I was always writing in the side, like writing just as a hobby, writing for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really my way to unwind. and I, I was living in Sacramento when I was living as a lawyer. Mm. And unfortunately, there wasn't a lot for me to do. Maybe it's different now, but when I was there, there wasn't a huge swing in singles. You know, scene. So I would rather <laughs> come home and write. That was like fun for me,
0: you know? Yes. What else are going to do?
1: So I finally got a chance to spend some serious time writing a novel when my parents offered to watch my kids who were very young, like under five, for the summer. And so I. Spent that summer, we got our floors redone. And you know, if you've ever gotten your floors redone, you know how noisy it is and how much dust there is. So that displaced me to the library. And I found myself in the California section of our library on California history. And I picked up a book on the gold rush and back up. I'd grown up really loving cowboys and like that whole Western era, cowboy movies, all that. Yes. My dad loved the Western. I think he sort of envisioned himself as a bit of a cowboy. I really do. because He had the the hat. He had the boots. Oh my God. That's so cool. Because I feel like he came to the country so young and he did not know any English. He did not know anybody. So he was sort of like a cowboy, you know, he was here in the West on his own. So I think he really identified with that sort of movie genre. Mm-hmm. So that's, for me, that was all very nostalgic. And and so I thought, wow, okay, I'm going to write a story <laughs> about a cowboy, but I want there to be a Chinese person in it. Mm, so that. that's how Under a Painted Sky came about that summer. The idea happened at that time and place, but I think all the elements that contributed to that idea were happening all through my life the cowboy things you know family history and all that so that was already in me it was just it took the opportunity and being around the california history to really spark the idea i think
0: so is this something that you've made it very intentional to focus on that time because not enough history is out there where it's in a digestible form, especially for our younger, the youth generation to understand, which I think is the most powerful generation for them Mm -hmm. to learn about. So if you want to like touch on that, I would love to expand on that. The thing is, you just don't know what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. You
1: don't know what you don't know. If Mm -hmm. it's not out there, you're never going to learn about it. You're never going to know that it happened. And so... Even with this latest book, The Downstairs Girl, which deals with the Chinese in the South, Mm -hmm. I did not know there were Chinese in the South either until Mm. I started doing research on it. The information is there, but you have to go looking for it. You have to know that you want to look for it. You have to Mm. know to look for it. So once I started doing that research, I found so many interesting things. And yes, I think for me i do want to try to uncover those areas that just have not been explored and bring those things to light where Asian-Americans have been in this country and how they've contributed to the fabric of this nation.
0: The fact that you knew what you were looking for and the fact that you are able to find the details, I know you're saying you can't find it unless you know. So for people who do know, they want to search for their stories and to see how far back, I guess, their people have been involved with America's history and helping to shape America to what it is today. Do you then have any advice on how they should approach research i know you said you're in the library and it's sad to say like so many people especially the younger generation they know of libraries but don't actually actively go and like because i know back in my day in high school like we we know to like flip through like the rolodex and like there's there's you know what i mean like the actual tools and resources if you could walk us through that that'd be so helpful because libraries are magic man it really is Well,
1: I feel like nowadays they have made it easy as they can. I mean, there is actually a button now. If you go to your library website, there's a button that is becoming more standard. And it's like an ask a librarian anything button. Really? And that actually works. I've tried it. Yeah. So if you are looking for family history, press the button, you know, that's like the simple way to do it. But the long style research that I do because I need to get, you know, deeper into the details. Yes. It always does start with a, a Google search. Then it brings me to uh, books that I may be interested. For example, for the downstairs girl, I was looking for books about Chinese in the South. And that was that was a bit of a tall order because there's not that many books on Chinese in the South. Mm. And so when I uh, started coming up with articles, and it, it gets tricky here because a lot of the articles are behind a paywall. So it can get very expensive to mm. uh, do research. But that's where the ask a librarian button is handy too. Mm. How can I get this article that I found? And oftentimes they will direct you to another library. If they can't get it themselves, and you know, if you're a member of a major library system, usually you can. But for a lot of the articles that I was researching in the South, you had to go to like Atlanta libraries and and get those articles. So then after I would finally able to get my hands on the article, oftentimes there would be footnotes. So you follow the footnotes and those can be more well-known sources. Hopefully they are. Then you read those books and then you it's sort of like, you know, following the clues back and back and back. I'm fortunate to live by the Martin Luther King library. It's part of the San Jose library system Mm. and it's a pretty huge research library. I think there were maybe five books on Chinese in the South, which is not a lot really. It's not, I mean, sometimes they were kind of like thin pamphlets, but it gave me an idea of who was who and you know, who was writing these articles, who was the expert. And I did contact some of the authors. A couple were dead, (laughs) but one was still living and was a retired professor in Long Beach. So I was able to find resources that way. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Just by following the paper trail. Yeah. You do feel like you're a bit of a history detective.
0: So Tiffany Smith Beltran, also part of our community, she was asking these questions about like you know what kind of research you do, libraries, university libraries, resources that you find most useful, your favorite resource for *Under a Painted Sky*, and coincidentally, we organically already touched on this. But you know, there was one part where she's like, "Do you do interviews and reach out for research? Was there anything like that?"
1: Yes, absolutely. I, the more I talk about you know, with friends or with colleagues about that. I was writing a book about the Chinese in the South. People would say, oh, yeah, I have a friend who's who's from the South and she's Chinese. You want to talk to her? So I would. Or sometimes friends would actually have aunts and uncles and things. And (laughs) a funny story is my audiobook narrator, Emily Wu Zeller, she's narrated all my historicals, actually. And she was telling me that. Okay. So there's this documentary. You might've seen this Yin, on Facebook. It was about the Chinese in the South. It was like a 10 or 15 minute thing. And it was talking about the Chinese in the Mississippi Delta
0: region. Oh, I did not see. No, but I'm going to have to check that it's
1: out. So interesting. Okay. So these, these, this community of Chinese, they were from the generation that was brought over to replace the field slaves. And when that didn't work out, they all settled in the Mississippi Delta region and they sort of kept to themselves, I guess. So they interacted with the the outside communities, but they were very close among themselves. They stuck together and they formed this community that was Chinese American, but also Southern. So their cuisine would reflect Southern elements like stir fried okra and things like this that were chinese but also very southern and so they interviewed these people and they interviewed some of the residents who are still living there and if you closed your eyes you would think they were you know just white southerners they sound so mississippian and have very strong accents and if you looked at them they're very they're dressed very southern too it was just Fascinating. And so I was discussing this with my narrator. She was asking me what kind of accents would I like her to do and how much of an accent should should she give the characters. And it turns out that the people in that documentary that they were interviewing are her like uncle. What <laughs> people? Yes. She's like related to she's from the Mississippi Delta. Her her people are from that area. Who knew? And I would never have known because she doesn't speak with an accent at all. (gasps) To my ears, she speaks with a very California-style voice.
0: Wow. Okay. That was fascinating. And I want to then jump into Jay Mehta. While we are talking about your books right now, he mentioned, yay, I'd love to know how Stacy crafted such a smart, witty, bold, and fashion savvy protagonist that is Joe Kwan in The Downstairs Girl. Couldn't get enough of the story. And I'm so excited for this episode. So he clearly is such a huge supporter of your work. Thank you, Jay. I think this love of hats, you know, I don't know
1: why. Maybe it was because I felt like I could never speak out. But when I was in middle school, I developed this weird penchant for hats. And I wore hats to school.
0: Oh, like full on hats, like not caps. Full on hats,
1: like felt hats, like with feathers and things. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, in a way, it made me stand out even more, but but it also enabled me to hide under this hat. It was strange. Oh. I don't know what I was thinking. Who knows what goes to the head of a 13-year-old girl, right? Anyways, I've just always loved hats. And this was like the perfect era to do it, mm-hmm. to use the hat thing, because, you know, they all wore hats. And when I was thinking about the metaphor of hat, you know, it's a way... For Joe to be able to express her creativity because she's making these hats, it's a way for her to share a bit of herself with the world without anyone being, you know, offended or or, or wanting to hurt her in any way for something to Whereas eventually, she's able to actually express her opinions through the Dear Miss Wheaty columns, and that aspect I grew up loving, Dear Abby and Dear Landers, and reading all those columns, and I think there's something about just talking to strangers about your problems, that can really open pathways for solutions Mm. in a way that friends and family can't. So I've always been fascinated by that construct, I guess, in America. It's been in American newspapers since the 19th century, maybe even before. Usually the columnists were, I mean, they're always portrayed as white women, older women, agony ants. But often they were men, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Um, so I thought, why not? You know, maybe this is a way for her to get her opinions heard. And when I started writing those columns, they just became part of her voice. <laughs> and mm. I think it was really fun to do it because she's kind of, she's kind of snarky in her own way. Yeah. You know? She's able to see the humor in a situation. And I thought that was perfect for an advice columnist, that sort of voice. So, yeah, thank you. She was so fun to write.
0: I cannot help but wonder because, you know, we've had guests on the show before who've mentioned you. We've had Stephanie Garber. We've also had Evelyn Skye. And, you know, just hearing overall how supportive you are with their careers and knowing that you've written so many books as well. Just overall with critique partners, how are you able to find each other, know that you guys are each other's person when it comes to critiquing slash writing buddy? You know, I hear how much your help has shaped their work, but how much has it shaped your work as well?
1: That's a great question. So when I first wrote Under a Painted Sky, I was not very plugged into the writing community mm-hmm. at all. And I didn't really know what a critique partner was. I thought it was just, I don't know, I didn't, where do you get one of these things? Like mm. I thought to myself, okay, maybe this is one of those newfangled things that the younger generation has. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know how to get one. So I'm just going to sort of like try to figure it out on my own. And then uh, just through the writing community, I met people who asked if I'd like to exchange work and those led to friendships. And I think the critique partners that I've continued to work with are first and foremost people who I feel like a deep connection, with. and I think that has to be there in order to respect each other's works. Mm. And then, second of all, I think both Evelyn and Stephanie and the other critique partners that I use, Abigail Hingwen is one of them. Oh, we just
0: had Abigail. That's awesome. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, I feel like we are able to render thoughtful advice and not just, I mean, I, I think it's important to be a cheerleader. And I, I don't work with critique partners who are just there to like critique, critique, critique. I feel like I'm too sensitive and I need like the sandwich method. And by the sandwich method, does everyone know what that is? <laughs> I feel like maybe <laughs> like just put some nice on the outside and yep. the meat and then put some more nice on the outside. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel like that's just how I roll and that's how I critique too because it's important to point out the good stuff yeah. because then it it helps you work on you know what's good and so you you try to you know not, I'm thinking about my Thanksgiving poem again you don't want to repeat the same thing <laughs> but you want to keep honing that what's good okay I'm going to work on what's good and make it even better mm. and then the bad stuff is balanced by it so I think a good critique partner can do both, point out the good stuff, point out the bad stuff, and then ultimately give you advice on where to go with it. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think that's also key. Someone who can brainstorm with you and give you advice. I feel like that elusive quality Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there's a lot of people who can point out what's wrong. You know, my dear husband, (laughs) he can point out what's wrong. (laughs) But in terms of how to fix it or what to do about it, you know, big blank space. I don't know. That's your job. So, yeah, I think these Quentin partners have been able to really work on, you know, get down in their hands, so, you know, really get down on a basic level, get down to the floor with me and, and wrestle it out. And I appreciate that about them.
0: Okay. That is really helpful to know that they're able to have that foresight of sharing possible options of where to go. That's so interesting because I'm actually working with a writing mentor right now. So that's helpful for me too, to know what to ask for to better help Mm -hmm. me with the writing process, you know, rather than floundering around. So that's very helpful. Thank you for that. Stacey, I'm going to throw rapid fire questions at you. We've added this to our podcast episodes where it's like, Spit it out as fast as you can, your gut instinct. When I say something, what comes to you? Oh, fun. Okay. All right. Money, finance, real talk for creatives, surviving.
1: Yeah. Make sure you have a good job so you can support yourself. You know, just, I think it's super important. You can't create if you're hungry.
0: basically. Some people agree or disagree with this word balance, surviving, and also how do you then squeeze in time and schedule time for writing when you might be extremely exhausted, also juggling. A lot of our listeners have children. So yeah, anything from the gut.
1: I think there's always going to be a time where you can't be productive. I mean, in terms of your work and you just have to wait because it will get better and you will find that time. i Struggle with that all the time raising my kids. There are weeks where I just can't get to the page, but I know that eventually, you know, they're going to be at their grandparents' house or whatever, and I'll be able to get that time, or I'll carve out time. I mean sacrifices have to be made. I want I don't watch TV. I can't watch TV, so that's a choice that I made when the kids were young. I don't watch TV. Because uh, I just didn't have time. Now that they're older, I'm allowed to watch some entertainment <laughs> now and then if I want to get my work done. But it was definitely a choice of, okay, I just have to cut this out, cut
0: that fun stuff out because I wanted to write. <laughs> so yeah. I was making choices. You want to make time, then you got to cut out things like TV watching or whatever it is to make that time for what it is that you really want to do. Very, very helpful, Real Talk. Okay best advice you've ever received? And if you were a mentor, what is one advice you would share?
1: My dad gave me the advice. It seems so simple. And I would always roll my eyes when he told me this. But he would tell me, Stacey, don't get discouraged. And that's it. Don't get discouraged. (laughs) I love that. You know, I hear his voice in my head when I feel discouraged. Because the thing is that just along, I mean, In keeping with what I just talked about, how things will always things are always changing. Mm. Tomorrow is another day. So you can't quit on your on your worst day, you know, because tomorrow is another day and you'll have another chance.
0: Thank you for that. That's gonna be a quotable for sure. Okay. What are small manageable steps you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals?
1: Oh, okay. I'm definitely, as you can tell, not the person who is like, I've got to crank out 2000 words a day. No, because I don't think that's realistic for my life. Mm -hmm. It's just not realistic. But the other thing is that I consider thinking part of the writing process. So I feel like if one of my hardest areas to work on is plotting, plotting is very difficult for me. And I feel like that takes the most time. So that requires a lot of You know, gray matter (laughs) for Mm -hmm. me. So, like, I'll take a walk, I'll be exercising, or I'll be driving, and I'll be thinking, I'll be thinking of the plot. For me, that constitutes writing. So, I think that writing is not just typing words onto the manuscript, it's not just, you know, putting pen to paper. It's a a huge process. So, if you're thinking about your manuscript, you're doing a great job because that's going to help you write later.
0: That's very helpful. Also removes a lot of guilt for those who aren't always able to put down words. Yes.
1: I know there was a writer. Oh, I can't remember his name. He's hilarious. But he says he'll be, you know, he'll have his bunny slippers on in his pajamas. He'll be like kicking his feet up on the couch and just staring off the space. And his wife will come home and she's like, what are you doing? He's
0: like, writing. I'm writing. (laughs) Daydreaming counts. Perfect. Thank you for that. All right. So last and final rapid fire question. What are some books that you've read, craft books, could be memoirs, it could be novels or TV shows and movies that you've absorbed that have really impacted your storytelling in the most positive ways that our listeners can then check out and learn from or also absorb and read or watch?
1: Well, there was a screenwriting book, and I don't remember the name. Is it Save the Cat? No, it's not Save the Cat. It was a really basic screenwriting book that I took a screenwriting class when I was at law school. Mm. And the screenwriting class was so helpful to me. And I think any screenwriting book probably is going to be helpful because I feel like it helps you with your plotting. It helps you with dialogue. There are so many things. I mean, writing a screenplay is such a great exercise in writing a novel because you do it quickly Mm. and you just get the basics in there and voila, story. So I think screenwriting is a real big help. Stephanie Garber mentioned this book to me. And so I just bought it. It's called The Anatomy of Story Mm. by John Truby. And I just bought a copy and I read the section on plotting. I keep talking about plotting, don't I? Obviously I have issues with it. But anyway, there's a chapter on plotting that I thought was pretty brilliant. So craft wise. But the other thing I do is there are books that I just love and admire. And I keep them on my shelf and I return to and these are stories. Book Thief is one of them. And another one is the L.A. Myers' Bloody Jack series. Mm. So for me, a writer of historical fiction, those were such seminal works. They're fun. Anybody who reads them will probably understand my work in the context of those books, just because I've always striven to leave readers with the same feeling that those books left me with, Mm. which is, just an avid interest in history and also like a great adventure. They are set in the turn of the century, 1800s, and it's about this English girl. She's the main character and this English girl who has to impersonate a boy in the British Navy and goes on to have these adventures as a, like a pirate, a privateer. She she travels all over the world. And I just love those books. So I actually refer to them a lot because I like to see how he's done certain things. And I like to hear the voice in my head and it just not because I want to like replicate the voice, but it reminds me of what I'm there to do. And so for me, that's a reference.
0: love those okay please let everyone know where they can find you on social media i am at at stacy lee author for both instagram and twitter and that wraps up our conversation with stacy lee stacy thank you so much for that incredible conversation packed with crafting and research advice and just so much wisdom you pulled from your life experiences it was such a joy having this conversation with you. And storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Stacy on Twitter and Instagram at Stacy Lee Author. To find all the resources and books Stacy mentioned throughout her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to her show notes page at slash stacy lee Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.